Welcome to Roughneck Dispatch, a podcast about storytelling, how we do it, why we do it, and who the hell does it best. We talk to the best storytellers about their greatest stories and why they have to tell them. I'm your host, crime writer and occasional journalist, Matt Phillips. Every episode, we start with a voice from the past. So, here we go, down the rabbit hole. This episode's voice from the past, Donald Goines from his novel, Cry Revenge. Dan stared down at the $10 bill lying in the dirt. He grinned up at the men, revealing good teeth that needed some cleaning. Now that's the way I like to get my money on, with no problems. He took his time, then quickly released the dice. The dice hit the dirt and began to spin around like small tops. Before the dice could stop spinning, the Mexican who had faded the money reached over and snatched the dice up from the dirt. Goddamn, Danny, how many times you got to go over it? Ain't going to be no spinning dice in the sand. Son of a bitch, the other Mexican said, loud enough for all the men in the game to hear. The gringo bastard must think we are the fools, huh? Hey, amigo, Curtis said smoothly. Sometimes people forget, you know. Ain't nobody been hurt. The dice were caught, so let's not get nasty about it, okay? His voice had remained low, but there was no doubt about the authority in it. The tall black was used to giving orders. The Roughneck Dispatch Podcast is supported by the Independent Fiction Alliance a professional association for independent authors and publishers. The IFA mission is to uphold the tenets of freedom of speech and expression. Check out the IFA at independentfictionalliance.com. On this episode of Roughneck Dispatch, we welcome Vern Smith, a Windsor, Ontario native and longtime Toronto resident, now living in the U.S. Vern has worked as a reporter, a political advisor, a radio DJ, and a golf caddy. Now, he's writing mean crime novels with the verve to sweep you up into a long, long night of reading. His novelette, The Gimmick, was a finalist for Canada's highest crime writing honor, the Arthur Ellis Award. And his latest novel, released in April, is called Scratching the Flint. This one is set in pre-9-11 Toronto features two detectives investigating a car theft ring. But that's just the headline. This crime novel interrogates the perceived ethics of justice, the internal and external elements culpable for the destabilization of North American policing and society, and it interrogates what it means or doesn't mean to be responsible for another person's violent and evil demise. Vern is also the editor of Jacked, critically acclaimed crime fiction anthology, and finalist for the second annual Chinaski Prize, awarded by the Independent Fiction Alliance. Vern, welcome. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you very much, Matt. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. We've been talking back and forth over the past couple of months on related project or unrelated projects to this, and uh, it's really nice to have a, have a moment to chat with some time. Um, this episode's voice from the past was Donald Goins. He of uh, street crime novel fame. Uh, I read a bit from Cry Revenge one of his novels from Holloway house. Uh, curious. Have you read, read Mr. Goins and, and any thoughts around him? Yes. I read this, this many of Mr. Goins novels. And Shows about 20 books in, in a pile. <laughs> well, there, there's, there's 16, there's 16. And I read them um, between approximately 82 and 98. And um you know, there were some years I read four, some years I read none, but uh, I, I got through the whole uh, catalog 
And um, I can remember specifically uh, the first one I bought, which was uh, was 82. And um, I'd been pulled uh, by some friends to go to a hardcore show in Detroit. And I did, I, I was very into music at the time and I still am. And, you know, I, I, I really, I, I was a real, a real fan of um, old school punk. And when hardcore came in, you know, there were, there were some things associated with it that I didn't love. And, and I didn't, you know, good music is good music. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly attracted to the culture and some things around that. And so, but anyways, we I got dragged to the show in Detroit. I can't remember what bands we were seeing. I can't remember exactly where it was, but the setup was um, you paid a cover, but they didn't they didn't have a liquor license, and so you had to go across the street to to get your booze at a party store. And um, I went across the street and I bought a, a great big beer. It was like in one of those um, you know the big Pepsi or Coke style containers. But it was beer, and it was it was a red, white, and blue label, and it was called Big Jug Beer, and I believe it was eighty nine cents, so it was quality stuff. And uh, at the, <laughs> at the um, at the checkout there, there were some books, and I picked up uh, a copy of Dope Feet, and mm -hmm. um, just you know briefly looked at the back, looked at, I said, I'm, "How much is this?" And you know, it was probably something like two ninety five or one ninety five or something like that. And I said, "I'll take this too." And he rang me up, and and he said uh, he was speaking to himself, and he said, um, a "Copy of Dope Fiend and one Big Jug beer." And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, and so I I put it in my pocket and and drank my Big Jug beer and hung outside the show mostly. Didn't spend a lot of time inside the room. And I I came back home and I ran it that weekend. And it at the time of my life where I probably wasn't doing a, a lot of pleasure reading, I, for the most part, wasn't getting off on what I was reading in school. And, um, you know, I, I was just blown away by this world that was, um, you know, just in terms of keeping people in the loop. I, I was from Windsor, which is one mile from Detroit. We're just separated by the water. And uh, Dope Fiend was a story you know, that was set about about three miles from my home, but it was worlds away in terms of my reality. And, you know, sure. that's, not, that's not to say Windsor is a candy ass town. It's not. It's a, it's a tough little town, but it's it's not 1970s, 1980s Detroit. Right. You know? And um, so it, it was like anything. It was unlike anything I'd ever read before. And, you know, at that point, I don't think I had any interest in, in writing fiction. I was, I was going to be a journalist and, um, you know, but, but nonetheless, I was obviously, a, uh, you know, I was reading material. I was reading different materials. I was reading a lot of newspapers, magazines, and, and, and the odd book. And, and I was, it, it was unlike anything I'd read before. And I talked to people about it and I showed people a book and, um, you know, it was it was like I was reading something dirty, and it, it you know it's a, it's a it's an extremely extremely unsanitized story. All of Goins' books are extremely unsanitized, um, but you know it, it wasn't until I was almost through the catalog in the '90s 
um, old school books, um, which was uh, sort of a sub-label of, of Norton, started putting out these great, reissuing these great forgotten um, Black American classics. And uh, they, they published Daddy Cool, which is, I think, one of Goyne's top, few books as well and it, you know wasn't it, it wasn't until about you know let's say approximately 96 97 98 when that came out and it was it was the first time i'd been reading it and this is you know by and large before the internet and it, it wasn't until then, and I read their foreword on Daddy Cool, and then um, that was that was the first time I'd read Daddy Cool, and I I realized that you know there was incredible literary value to this work. Sure. Um, nobody had told me to read it. I wasn't reading right. it to impress anybody. It wasn't you know it wasn't sitting here thinking aloud. You know, I, I don't have enough um, Black authors from Detroit on my reading list. I, I was reading it simply because I wanted to. And, and you know, once I realized that, in fact, you know, there was literary value to this and I wasn't, you know, doing some some dirty thing by reading these books, I started reading more about Goins and, and read both bios that I'm aware of. And... Um, you know, started talking to people about the books. And uh, it's incredible to me. I'm, you know, I'm a white boy from Canada and I'm living in Illinois here. And if if I talk to people here about Donald Goins or Iceberg Slim, mm. they've, they've, ne they've never heard of them, you know? And, and the only person that has is uh, um, the, uh, the, the manager of bookies, a, a bookstore not too far from here. And, and these are two of the biggest selling authors, biggest selling black authors in American history. Right. And, um, you know, for, for everyone's bluster, how can you not be aware of these books? How can you not be talking about these books in some sort of historical fashion? And, and, you know, really why, why are we not seeing, um, you know, authors and books that that answer to this experience today hmm. and, and and so you know it's, it's 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 a really it's a really odd thing and i came into it by accident but i'm i'm sure glad i did and you know i learned more about um writing fiction reading donald goins novels than i ever did any class in school yeah i mean it's interesting because when i was selecting a passage to read i was kind of in today's world going through the book and i'm like well I, you know am i going to read any of this like you know without getting you know flayed in some way or another and i i thought well let me just read some of the opening <laughs> you know so that's kind of where right. i where i landed because uh oh, i need to keep it short and i just wanted to kind of pay homage but um i think the the notion that you weren't reading something because a professor told you to, or it's on a syllabus or uh, because it's sort of in the mainstream as accepted um, really says something. Um, I think it's interesting too. You brought up, so, so my discovery of him is recent, but it was at a used bookstore mm -hmm. um, with a, with a used bookseller who um, 
is quite knowledgeable about the crime fiction genre. So, you know, I didn't find it Barnes and Noble or on Amazon. It wasn't pitched to me via the algorithms and based on my other readings, it probably should have been. Um, so, uh, yeah, I find that really interesting. Uh, the discovery of, of new writers and, and new stories. But, but that was, you know, that was all, that was very much um, part of my experience in terms of hunting down culture. And I, I don't know if it was the punk thing. I, I don't really consider myself to be a punk because there's a lot of things that um, they didn't like about me and I didn't like about them. And, you know, so it was never a complete buy-in to punk culture, but there were parts of punk culture which, you know, made an incredible impression on me. And I think part of it is, is that I, I've always been very good about going out and, and finding my own stuff. Um, and you know, it was very helpful when I was in radio. And um, but you know, even as a kid, I I, I wanted something that was mine. And mm -hmm. I would I would go out. You know, we had a Sam the Record Man in Windsor, and local bands would put out uh, seven inches on uh, vinyl seven seven inches. You know, in in runs of five hundred or a thousand or sure. twelve or something like this and and you know they, they they were giving these things away i mean it was you know it, it was it was you know maybe two or three or four bucks to buy these things and some of them were outstanding and some of them i i played the spies from windsor never really made it out of windsor but um they're i i think they're one of the great canadian punk acts period mm -hmm. and um you know and so in terms of music i was very good at finding my own thing and and you know not not being necessarily taken in on you know eating whatever the radio fed me and so you know it was through it was through my exploration of being a music fan I was never a musician I you know I think some people should listen and I'm one of those but you know I did go out <laughs> and, and see bands and yeah. bands I, I took chances and you know so it was because of that you know, I was open-minded enough to go to a hardcore show, even though it wasn't my thing. You know, just thank whoever I had the wherewithal walk across the street and get that big jug beer. You know, right? right. And it was completely by accident. I didn't know who the hell Donald Goins was. Yeah. You know, um, but but this, you know, and I I didn't know where it came from. Is this, you know, is why is why are books being sold in this grody place? And and you know. Um, it it was just it was the same sort of urges and chase uh yeah. that i bought goins book that i bought seven inch eps by local musicians in windsor yeah the same hunger um same hunger for something new and different and authentic i mean i think the one of the parallels i see with probably early punk culture um whether it's hardcore or not is the you know one of the parallels with sort of the modern crime fiction a certain actually i shouldn't say that a certain uh avenue or group within the modern crime fiction and maybe genre fiction in general is like that diy attitude yes yes um which probably that's the main thing i got from it i mean i i think recently i mean i'm a fan of the minutemen but i was recently watching the documentary with featuring Mike Watt and he talks, you know, they, they interview flea and he's like, yeah, they just thought, you know, 
with guitar tuning and bass tunings, like some guys like them loose, some guys like them tight. <laughs> it's right, like, right, right. And that was sort of their ethos around, oh, I just like mine loose, you know? <laughs> and what emerged out of that, though, is more authentic and interesting than, you know, popular popular music at the time and probably ever. But yeah, I, I love that. The sort of, it's, I think once you have that hunger inside you to find something authentic and new, it never goes away. I would hope that's how I've always been. But I do it's, think it's really it comes, unique. Sorry, sorry, it comes in ebbs and flows. Sure. You know, and and it I mean, there is there is, you know, you have to have a desire to be a hunter and gatherer on some level. And sometimes you do that more often than that. But but I, I'm still, you know, I still have the same curiosity I had when I was hunting this stuff out, you know, hunting the music out as as you know, a 12-year-old kid. And um, we had great music in the house. Uh, my family all had great music, whether it was my parents or my brothers bringing in Bowie albums fresh off the press. Um, but, you know, I wanted my own thing. And uh, uh, you, you do have to look, and it is trial and error. And, you know, you, if it's books, you do read some crap to get to the good stuff. And it's music, same thing, you know. And uh, it, it is, it's a chore, but it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a geek's calling too. Well, I think once you discover something though, that's what makes it worth it to me at yes. least. But yes. yeah, I mean, oh, we're going to get to your novel, but uh, while we're on this topic, I mean, I do think I have been thinking more and more recently, but I've always thought this is that I think writers in general um, are just wired a bit differently than a lot of other people who don't write. I think that makes sense, but yeah. Um, for sure. yeah. And so I think you're bringing up a, a really important point, which is like a lot of the writers I know and I'm friends with and have built good relationships with, they describe a similar thing to what you're describing now, which is sort of this hunting and gathering. I really like that term. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that probably, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. Like, I feel like, especially those formative teenage years, you sort of develop and, and into adulthood, even now, right? Middle age or whatnot. But you develop your own personal canon, I guess I'd call yes. it. Yes. For yes. for whatever tradition you're working within or wh however you want to press boundaries or work within boundaries. So I'm curious of your thoughts on that. And aside from, you know, punk music, what are some, and Donald Goins and some of that genre fiction, what are some, I guess, uh, specific elements of that for you? Well, one of the things that, again, you know, it's just, just happened by accident and it's it's you know it started with goings but um connected to to other writers and it's 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 something i've been you know sort of doing some half-assed research on on my own and and i i think you know you you i i like a school of writers who spent a lot of time in prison and you know i'm i'm not i've 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 never been charged with anything myself um but you know we all have observations and um fantasies about this stuff and and draw from reality and and all that but you know nobody knows better than uh you know people who have experience on the other side of the law and so you know, in terms of being a hunter and gatherer, um, Goins led to uh, Clarence Cooper Jr., who was also a Detroit writer, and while not nearly as 
prolific as Jones or, or Goins, uh, sorry, um, you know, turned out a number of novels, including The Scene and and um, The Syndicate and Weed and, and The Farm, that are all very important to me. And that led to Himes and that, you know, then I started looking, I'm Canadian and I'm living in Canada at this point. And so, you know, who do we have? And we have Stephen Reed, um, who uh, published uh, excellent, is one of the finest examples of Canadian crime fiction I can think of off the top of my head, uh, called Jack Rabbit Parole. And Roger Caron, or Roger Caron, who uh, who wrote a, a, a prison bio called Go Boy. And, you know, all this work really really blew me away and it's it's not that i have a prison fantasy i do not um but it it was crime and a lot of it was crime fiction but it you know whether they knew it or not they were punks um because they were operating against uh they, they were operating on a different level and one of the things i i've been discussing with some of my friends is i think a lot of um, a lot of the mentality that I hear from the crime fiction community um, has to do with things that that were probably learned and handed down through the Hayes Code, and specifically on on what we're talking about. Um, one of the things that the, I'm just taking a look at my phone here, something I had up for our discussion: all criminal action had to be punished. And neither the crime nor the criminal could elicit sympathy from the audience, or the audience must at least be aware that such behavior is wrong, usually through, quote, compensating moral value, unquote. And um, so, you know, if you're operating on that, um, your writing and your reading is, is going to be very narrow. In fact, you're going to get to the point where you're, you're reading authors that on who are still subscribing to that on some bastardized level um customized level uh you know you you read them enough and you get to the point where you know what's going to happen next and, and there's a very successful author who's written one of my favorite one of my top 10 15 favorite books of all time and i won't mention them. it's not my purpose to embarrass the gentleman um but the further I got into this gentleman's catalog, I realized that every time somebody said something that wasn't correct, that wasn't politic, they eventually died. And so it got to the point where somebody would say something like that and it would be, I would say to myself, well, that's it for them. And <laughs> you know, the, the, the problem there it's not it's not a moral problem it's a literary problem because sure. now i know great writer what's what going to happen what you're going to do next and 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 that you know to me that is any writer's achilles and we you know we'll be watching um something and and you know i'll say okay well this is what's going to happen and 9 times out of 10 it, it happens and you know it's it's one of one of the things I I really appreciated about when uh, Krista brought in your novel, uh, Good Rush of Blood, which is is coming out on Run Amok Crime in the fall, um, there was never a point in your book 
where you gave anything away and where I had that feeling, you know, such and such is going to happen next. So-and-so is going to die. I didn't know. And so, you know, to me, you know, you're your own person, you're your own author, because you're, you're not subscribing to that. You're not tying a hand behind your back. None of us are good enough writers to do so. And, and, you know, everything that happened, uh, you know, sort of, when we got to the point, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And then whatever happened, it kicked me in the gut because I didn't see it coming. And that's, that's what I want um, as a reader. And, you know, that's what I want to accomplish as a writer. And, you know, you did a really good job in that. And, and, you know, as we get further down the road, I I'm farting around with something that's written in the first person. I haven't written in the first person since the nineties. And uh, there's some questions I have to you in terms of breaking up material because I know how to break up, you know, third person um, matter. But, you know, this is going to be a new thing for me if I decide to go in that direction with that project. So, um, you know, it's 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 really important that, um, you know, it's, it, for me, as a reader and as a writer is is really important to get away from the formulas um you know you want to read an ideal crime book on my expectation on my uh, recommendation read drugstore cowboy you know and to me that's that's you know i think i think mr fogel only wrote one great book but it's a hell of a great book and uh um mm. you know it's 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 what i just said there in terms of you know no sympathy for the criminals it, it also extends into um prison writers or incarcerated writers however sure. you want to put it and you know I, I i do look at what they're doing at the big uh festivals even though i don't for the most part go and i very rarely see anything about prison writers or incarcerated writers or formerly incarcerated writers and you know, once in a while, somebody will send somebody some books. Um, but it's sort of like it's okay to read the shit, but we don't want them writing it. And uh, it's it's that that's a holdover from the Hayes Code, and right, uh, you know, and 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 you have you have a a mentality there. And again, you know, you take that out of crime fiction, and it's a very narrow place. Yeah. So a couple of points of clarification. So the Hayes Code, just for listeners who aren't, you know, familiar with motion picture history in America, essentially it was a set of guidelines, moral guidelines for what could and couldn't be in film, right? So there's that part, um, which then it was is a set of self-imposed guidelines, I guess we should say. Um, probably with I don't know enough about the history, but I'm sure with significant pressure from various parties. Um so generated sort of a formulaic um, approach to storytelling in the cinema, screenwriting. And then the other thing I wanted to bring up is that I think with the formerly incarcerated writers or incarcerated writers, um, I think it's really interesting that. So, so like, look at the project innocence, right? We have thousands of people in our justice system in the U S who are wrongfully convicted. And we know this, I mean, there's right. a whole projects to, 
to, uh, to, to, to try to discover this. And so that to me is really interesting because it's really defeats any sort of argument around like, oh, these people don't, don't belong in the conversation. Right. Because it's like you, you, you don't know. Sure. There are some people who committed the crimes, maybe many, maybe most, but the point is that the argument exists that it's possible they haven't. So from a moral standpoint right there, that kind of defeats the moralist argument, I think, but people don't think in that, in that way. But more than that, I think it's like, you know, to, to, um, make room for the lived experience in the crime genre. Uh, I think that, that to me feels like what's most important, um, because it makes really just stylistically and liter from a literary standpoint, better stories. Um, like you said, if I know that a guy says, a, you know, a bad word, or curses God, he's going to get killed. I mean, that is not a good story to me because I know it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a lot of interesting points. I mean, I think of scratching the flint, right? So I think that you do the same thing really well. You do it with a couple of detectives, uh, your detective Cecil. Uh, I, I wouldn't like, this isn't a mystery novel to me in the sense of, no, no, it's a crime novel. It's not. A yeah, it's it's a crime novel. You know what's what's gonna ha what's happened, right? What the what the the central uh, motivator is. But with Cecil, this uh, I guess I'd call him an up and coming detective. Um, he's partnered with Alex. Uh, he uh, who's more of a veteran. Um, you kind of know. Okay, he's gonna do something. He's gonna do something, and he's going to step over the lines of what is morally ethically sound uh but you don't know what and i think that's where the most important part of the novel is is that you don't know what he's gonna do and so when it finally happens it's both inevitable and surprising um and okay. i think that's really hard <laughs> incredibly difficult to do as a storyteller. So I'm curious for that particular, I don't want to give away what happens, but I'm curious for the particular, I'm, and I know you, you know what I'm thinking about. Yeah, yeah, I um, how did you arrive at that? Was it a discovery? Was it the fulcrum of where you started the story? Um, and I know you sort of discovered this novel, you'd started it and kind of dug it out of a drawer. Um, so I'm, I'm just curious because we can say all we want about the Hays Code and we can, Blah, 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 blah. Okay. But like for people who are trying to write, I mean, they're going to look at sort of what popular media is doing and they're going to try to replicate. So I'm curious where the, the, I guess we'll call it the deviance as a writer comes in to start working in that way um, for this particular story. Okay. Well, it, it, it's the, the things that were going on um, uh, as a resident of downtown Toronto, as a resident of downtown Toronto, covering crime and police and you know all that that good stuff um there were there were just breathtaking examples of malfeasance and two in particular um there was uh there was there was a homeless man who had been in an altercation thomas kerr somebody who probably shouldn't have been on the streets alone in the first place and, uh, you know, it was like a large group of police officers took him down to Cherry Beach and, and you know, literally beat the hell out of him. And there was another incident, incident where um, uh, members of one squad in particular were extracting favors from uh, 
trans street hookers in in the middle of the night and you know it was just so thrill kill and over the top and you know we're not talking about one or two officers here that um those are the things that made Cecil plausible and in in fact I, I based Alex and Cecil on on somebody that I'd I'd on two people that I encountered I went to a press conference at police headquarters and there was a diner. It's mentioned in Scratching the Flint, Franz, that was attached next to it. And I went down there to have a coffee and go over my notes and read press releases and, and things like that. And, you know, a couple of tables over, there was a senior black officer and uh, a, a, a young officer, younger than, than me at the time. I guess I would have been in my early 30s. And... Um, you know, the, the young white officer was just incredibly mouthy and disrespectful. And, you know, they they sort of became, in my mind, Alex, Alex and Cecil. And so um, you've you've got this story and it, it was. It was a different process to me because I, I started out from the 27th when I when I got back to it um, after I had moved here. So this is probably 2019, 2020. And I finished it in 2020, I believe, which is when I copyrighted it. And um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with what was a relatively polished 27,000 word novella. And so I already know the end. You know, and everything's in place. It's it's you know, it's a great outline to finish something. And so I just, you know, sort of worked from within that. Um, but all the way through, um, you know, I I why why are these things happening? Why is this story plausible? And it's it's a story of institutional failure. And I think that is something that's very central to sort of the time. And the place uh, I, I I've said before I I don't think 9/11 was an end of innocence I think it was an end to perceived influence innocence hmm. and you know all these things that I'm writing about and I'm I'm documenting as backstory you know a lot of this stuff actually happened in Toronto sure and um, you know in particular we had uh, we we had you know one of our most prolific um, sex killers. Um, you know, Paul Bernardo, and he was out on the, he was, he was out on the streets doing more dastardly things while the Toronto force and the Niagara force, you know, fought each other and gate kept, they were gatekeeping information from each other. They were actually insulting each other on the phone. Apparently things mm -hmm. were so bad between the two forces. And as a result, um, you know, Bernardo was able to continue practicing what he was practicing for another month or two, you know, before mm -hmm. they finally caught up to him. Maybe it was more than a month or two, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a significant enough amount of time to allow him to do more damage. And and so, you know, you at that point, you know, you can see or I could see, um, you know, I was probably paying extra special attention because I was covering police and covering crime and cops and um, things like that. And, you know, I, I was just dumbfounded that these things were happening from, you know, what essentially were government employees. Yeah. And, you know, the camouflage that was offered to them, the protection that was offered to them, 
um, you know, they were allowed to operate like this and they were allowed to operate like this because it's part of the plan. Um, you know, uh, if in this country, I think the most obvious example is, is, you know, up until and through the 2020 election, mm-hmm. uh, both parties in this country uh, taking money from private prison, private prison interests. Sure. They're not giving the money for free. They're giving the money because they want policy. And the policy they want is more people in prison. And, you know, if you've got cops um, like we have in Scratching the Flint, you're going to get more people in prison. They're not likely to let them slide. And and so, uh, you know, we really need to take a look at, at, at how... Um, how the how police policy regarding behavior and things like that, how that's established, why it's established, who's in charge of that, and you know why it's not operating like a civil service department should. And um, you know the 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 answers are in our past because we're still for all the anti-police actions we had here and other places in the world between 2016 and 2020. Um, you know, people were talking about these things on the ground floor of the protests. They were talking about the donations from private prison interests, but none of this stuff made the news or very rarely made the news. And, yeah. you know, the coverage, the coverage pretty much degenerated into bad cough, no donut. Right. And, um, you know, that's that's why we're still here and, you know, why I'm sure we're going to have another round of of riots uh, shortly um, into the future. And, you know, the the, the fact of the matter is the, this story will upset people. And as I've already said, you know, don't put that on me, put that on your your elected representatives, because I'm, you know, pretty much uh documenting something i'm i'm creating what i think is is or i've created um mm. something that i think is is a historical document of value in right. regards to how we got here from there yeah yeah certainly so we i, should, I said it in the intro but to clarify the novel set in the spring of of uh, uh you know prior to september 11 2001 so um yeah, it's right about right about the last day of the novel is May first. Yep. So yep. so is is May first, uh, two thousand and one. Yeah, I th- I'm interested in your um, notion of it's not the end of innocence; it's the end of perceived innocence. And what that brings up for me, I I, I agree with you, frankly. But what that brings up for me is how do we grapple with this idea, the idea that for me, when I read your novel, I have a keen sense of, as just a human being and someone who believes in justice and you know, mm-hmm. enforcing of certain laws, um, of what's right and wrong for someone in that position. Right. What's interesting is and maybe it's just, maybe it's just a fault with me. So you feel free to say that. Uh, but there's also a primal urge within me as a reader probably as a person too in the general world that there's certain people you want to get their comeuppance. Right. And I think societally that must be true where there's this primal thing that feels like it's happening as well and has been happening for some time uh, amplified, I think by technology. But um, I guess I'm curious in your thoughts on 
how to explain that part of it. Like where, where, where's the line between what's right and what's primal. Maybe that's not even a good descriptor or a good question, but I'm not sure if anything I'm saying makes a lot of sense, but there is also that primal urge in the reader, right? Mm. To see what, to, to what Cecil does, does fulfill some primal thing. And I'm curious about your thoughts on that as it relates to, you know, this document that you've created. Um, I, I, I don't want to spoil my own book, but you know, one of the things I was very determined to do, and I'm not sure why is I, 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 I don't feel like I owe you the ending you want. Um, and I'm talking about you when I say you, I'm, I'm talking about you on a macro level, not you personally. And, uh, you know, I, I, I understand that, you know, you, if you watch Rocky, uh, the first Rocky, you, you want Rocky to win. And what makes it such a great story is that he doesn't. And, um, so on a certain level, I've, I've got the, the same mentality here and, and, you know, the, the thing again, without giving, giving, without giving too much away, um, you know, the reality is that because of Cecil's age, he's still in the system. And, and, you know, that is one of the points I, I, I wanted to make. And, and, you know, I, I do certainly understand the desire for comeuppance and and uh things like that um but you know also coming from a different country and and you know as somebody who's um consumed books and culture you know from canada as as well as other places in the world but particularly the u.s um you know there there's different ways to go about things and and you know i don't think as as a rule, um, you know you're going to get that in every story, and that, that if you do, then you're you know you probably you're, you're probably going to figure out the book before you finish it, and and you know that's one of the things I I wanted to avoid, and you know in in terms of um, allowing certain characters to continue, certainly um, you know I, I I can understand how somebody would want this to happen to that person or that to happen to this person um you know but uh it's it, it, it's something actually came up um when i was uh when we sent out the the this book for blurbers and you know somebody felt that and you know who i'm talking about i'm i'm trying to you know protect my plot here not the person um, but you know, there is, there is a character who obviously has some questionable views and, uh, it's also a character who accomplishes a goal. And so for that reason, the blurber was upset that, um, you know, this person as such is a hero and, and. I think, you know, I, I do think that's a bit of of an, an American thing, um, you know, and just just falling back to the, you know, back to the familiar tropes. Earlier. Um, you know, all criminal action had to be punished. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, and that's that's 
you, you know, it's, it's, it's not a bad, it's not necessarily a, a bad goal from a, um, you know, governmental enforcement point of view, but it, <laughs> it, it, it clearly does not happen. You know, right. all, criminal, all criminal behavior is not punished. Absolutely and, not. And, and, you know, all criminal behavior among private citizens or all criminal hate behavior among law enforcement, elected representatives, whatever. And so, you know, it's it's in terms of, again, we're, we're, we're having a, a literary conversation. And so if that if that's going to be the rule from a literary point of view, a it's not it's it's not representative of of reality and mm-hmm. and you know b i'm going to start figuring out your stories if that's the rule you know right you're right and so so you know and, and the, the thing to remember about you know alex and cecil is there are three published works uh there's the gimmick mm-hmm. uh, an international incident which is a you know probably about a four thousand word short story and scratching the flint and and you know in in some of those works, you know, Cecil literally gets his ass kicked. Right. And so, you know, it's 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 not gonna end the same way every time. Sure. You know, it, it's it's not, you know, it's 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 not a cop buddy movie, you know. And um so so you know, you you've gotta find, particularly, you know, in, in this case where I'm working with a couple of detectives on on three separate works now, even though some of them are more major than others, you know, I I, I don't want to do the same thing every time. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, this just happens to be a place where where you know somebody you might not want to get away with something, um, you know, got away with it. But if 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 you can't if you, if you can't sort of um as a reader get through that i mean you know maybe maybe you were cheering for mickey and mallory knox and natural born killers or maybe you were cheering for slim pickens and dr strangelove Hmm. and you know in that case there are certain characters obviously in my book and that if you found yourself cheering for them um you know it's it's maybe you better do a bit of reflection yourself and maybe that's the art you know, yeah. the, that that's that, or, or rather, that's the the response that the art elicits. And so now, maybe you got to do some thinking, and and you know, and I have I have run into people who who you know actually, you know, kind of kind of like Cecil, and um, you you know, I I I have fleeting moments of concern about that, but then i say okay well you know that's that's on you and you know maybe you better go do some self-reflection yeah i mean i think there has to be a certain likability maybe not likability but um infatuation with the character to keep reading and you build that really i think really well so i'm not sure like or um even respect is the word i would give but there's an infatuation with it's almost like a people watching element, right? You want to see, you want to see. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you bring up another good point, which is, I mean, I, there's all this, I know so many writers who, um, I don't want to say so many, but I know a lot of writers who sell a lot of books. They have these things called beta readers, which, you know, this whole idea around sending it out to a bunch of people to read. And in some cases it's like a workshop aspect where, 
oh, I hated this. I hated that. And they take feedback and, and that's fine. But there are also writers who it's more of a commercial enterprise where it's like a focus group right, right of beta readers. And so I think that, I mean, I, I, one, I hate that. I'll just say it outright. I think it's ridiculous um, because it defeats the purpose of what we've been discussing here, which is to create something authentic yes. and reflective of reality of the truth, reflective of the truth in some way that's inaccessible um, except through the novel. So that's interesting. But then I think the extension of that, and I saw you mention this in another interview was from, from a curatorial aspect, you're seeing short stories that are clearly generated by AI. And so it feels like the next extension of this beta reader thing is like, well, let me, you know, say I create an outline and then I just have AI generate the first, you know, a few sections of the first chapter or something. And I I put that together. Um, I'm not ever going to do that, but I know people who have and are. And so I'm curious, are you seeing that a lot? Is that, do you think that's the next extension of this or are they unrelated? Um, Okay. Well, (laughs) It's a lot of uh, words there, so uh, let's just boil down. Let's 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 get start off with the AI, and um, uh, so during the Jack process, I I read uh, four hundred some subs, and um, there was a small number of subs that and I at the time I thought they were jokes, and um, they were. That's actually funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and like I, someone was pranking you in some way. Yes, yes, that's that's what I thought, and maybe they were, you know, and that's that's entirely okay, um, because you know that's why I'm able to say I read 400 some stories, right? They added to the pile, and um, but but there was some stuff in there that it it seemed like it was just raw AI stuff, and I thought that at the time, and it really wasn't a hot button thing with me. Um, back then i i really woke up from i think i was half asleep on the issue until very very recently and uh it, it was the it was the first day um trump was supposed to be arrested and you know and i i read the news first thing in the morning i'm i'm a news junkie and i like to read my papers and have my coffee and so i'm scrolling through the news and um you know, there was something about Trump was supposed to be arrested that day. And I went looking for it on Twitter, if there were any updates on Twitter. And there were these hilarious pictures of him being chased down by CIA or FBI or whatever, and he's running from them. And, you know, of course, they catch him and ripped off his suit jacket and everything. And, and, and you know, it took me a few minutes to say, OK, you know, this is fake this is fake yeah but but that's how good they were they looked real yeah yeah. certainly and and you know and if they can do that to trump they can do that to anyone and um so you know it's this this is very far along these these pictures looked a hundred percent authentic and i i i have disagreements with colleagues about where it's at um, I, I know it's being used and I know it's being refined in terms of the written word. And um, there's some things in short outbursts, apparently it can do very well. Um, I think what's going to happen here is whatever happens with the screenwriters is going to set a standard. And unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be a very good standard. Um, I, I, 
I, I last straw I got out of serious journalism and you know it wasn't one thing but it was the straw that broke the camel's back is I the place I was working at we were going to have to take um story ideas from marketing and I just said no you know like I went back to my desk and I thought about it and um before the day ended I sent in my resignation letter I put all my uh, belongings in plastic bags and walked out of there and never did, you know, really hardcore journalism again. And so, you know, I took my stand and I don't expect the screenwriters to take my stand. Um, that said, I, I do think their demands are very reasonable. Um, unfortunately, I do think they're going to be forced on some level to accept and work with AI and, um, I, I know why that is. And, uh, you know, and people, people, you know, people are going to say, um, our children, our families and things like that. And that's fine. But as soon, you know, it's like Alex Rodriguez taking steroids and not getting any benefit from them. And, you know, as soon as you start doing that, and I'm sorry, I don't want to put this on people, but, um, as soon as you cross that line, you're, you become, uh, something akin to a content technician. And I'm not trying to, you know, be hurtful or rub that into anybody's face, but look at, I'm, you know, you can argue as to whether or not I'm a good, but I'm a writer, goddammit. And, um, you know, I have to do my work. It's not easy. And, you know, if, if you're gonna put your hand in the medicine jar, pardon my French, but you're not a fucking writer. And you're something else. And and um, unfortunately, however, I do think that's going to create the standard. And when it becomes okay for them, um, it's is going to be it's it's you know just a hop, skip, and a jump to fiction. And um, you know you're going to have it there. I don't know because I don't use it. Um, but talking to people who are more familiar with it than I am. Um, my understanding is that it's it's going to further sanitize content because there are just some words that AI won't allow. Um, I don't know the veracity of that, but that's that's what I've been told. Uh, my general take on it is that it's at the point where um, you can dump a bunch of information into and it'll spit out a half-assed story and then you know we'll need a human minder to to bring it home um but it will be better than that it will be more effective than that and uh, you know as as one of my friends one of my writer friends recently said you know we could be the last of the buffalo it's possible it's entirely possible um i hope not uh i yeah this issue is a point of I think real passion and interest to me specifically. I also work in academia, so there's um, oh, some real specific elements yeah. of this. But what I would say is, um, you know, it. Look, if we're going to go that route, well, why don't we just start AI generating writers? Right? We could just, you know, well, I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, if it hasn't already, I mean, we don't know. I mean, then these these um, publishing houses, the big five, can just say, "Hey, you know, here's what we're going to do: we got a stable of AI writers, 
and uh, you know we're gonna hire a bunch of bunch of people to just feed uh, ideas into this algorithm, and it'll pop it out, and then we'll just mind it, you know, like you said. So I, I think that it's really interesting to think about because you know when we see some of these big, like uh, the easiest one to look at is, I guess, commercial novels, right? That are Sure. Clearly, clearly written by ghostwriters, which do have a lot of elements that are that are great, right? Because you can't get to be a ghostwriter for whoever without being pretty damn good writer, at least a craftsman in some sense. Um, yeah, you're just probably not sellable as yourself. Exactly, whatever. exactly, yeah. exactly. So, um, you know, um, I think that that creates a sanitized level of taste amongst the audience, amongst readers, amongst viewers. We see this with blockbuster films, of course. Um, and so I wonder how I think our collectively, the lack of willingness to support independent art and writing. Um, I don't want to say there's a lack of willingness, but sort of the lack of mass willingness um, has generated probably some sort of sanitized audience I'm quite sure of this, in fact. And so what I, will end up happening is that leap that you're describing to AI-generated writers and films um, is probably, you know, going to be pretty easy to happen. But, but, um, you know, I, I, there's um, it, it's funny. I I said I work in academia. I uh, there's been a lot of talk about this, and I don't want to get away from literary matters, but there was an AI generated article in a literary journal that was not peer reviewed. Right. But, mm -hmm. and I found it really manipulative because it didn't state it. It just did it, said it at the end. It was an AI generated professor, blah, 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 so on and so forth. And my response was, you know, AI has never experienced a paper cut. So, so like that, that's just the base, right. Yeah, for humanity. That, that, that's great. Uh, that's they've great, never, bro. you know, never grieved a dog that died never you know so it's it's um i think it's it's one of these instances where people are looking at what they can do what they're going to gain from it and the productivity and what they're losing is unfathomable yeah. and so um you know i don't think there's anybody in the world who would have take, taken your premise for this novel and be like oh yeah here's a premise let me punch this in the ai so that's mm -hmm. what you're losing right not even the craftsmanship not even that the story was done but that initial lived experience that you had and bringing it in so so yeah it's really interesting i mean i'm really surprised i guess i'm not surprised you're seeing submissions that are ai generated but that's really, really and, and, and you know what matt it might have been jokes like, like I, I, I can't figure out how anybody, it, how anybody thought I was going to accept that, and um, I, I don't think they, they did. Um, but I, I don't think it was written by a human either. You know, once you cross that line, you cross that line, man, right. and it, it brings everything into um, question. I, I feel like I've done six honest books, whether you like them or not. Sure. And, um, you know, my, my goal is to do a seventh and, you know, if, 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 if I step off the curb tomorrow and something bad happens, you know, I feel like I could stand pat and, and, you know, I, I do think you, I do think people have to protect themselves from this and, um, you know, people have to have some 
escalate conversations with themselves and and come up with a plan how to deal with it. And again, I'm sorry that you know I I don't believe our screenwriter friends are going to have much of a choice. Yeah, uh, but you know, it, 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 once you cross the line, you cross the line. Yeah, I yeah we're at that point most yeah. definitely if we haven't already passed it. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's it's a choice that people are going to have to make and you know i think like a lot of things in the this digital um almost telepathic age right uh with this media barrage i think it's going to become increasingly difficult to tell the difference um so i think that you're right in that people have to make a stand and say this is how i do my work and right. that's that and that's who i and that becomes a key port you know part of your identity as as a writer or artist or whatever you are musician i don't care um you know but a journalist for sure so yeah i agree with you there um yeah uh, yeah i mean i i guess i just yeah it's also hard you know reading scratching the flint it's also hard there is no situation that i can conjure in my head in which this book would have been created by anybody else but you, right? Like that, that's where the value is. And so I, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, in, in regards to that, um, you know, people have, who've read it already have made similar noises without um, the backdrop of an AI conversation. And, uh, you know, somebody, I remember somebody I cared deeply about in the nineties said, you are fiercely yourself. And, um, you know, that's what I want to do with my work. And people have made the same noises about, about scratching the flint and, uh, you know, whatever you make of it, good, bad, or different. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's my work and I'm proud of it. So that's, I can, I could stand pat on that all day. Yeah. You should be beyond, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, what, what yeah. I, one of the, one of the things, one of the things I, I I like about the situation selfishly is that, you know, I was talking to somebody just this week about the AI situation. And I said, well, I'm, and, and you know, just from us getting set up here today, I'm a bit of a Luddite. And uh, I, I said to somebody, I'm, you know, I, I don't even want to know how it works. I'm not going to download the program. And they said, well, you don't download it. It's on a cloud. And so I said, well, see, that's going to be like so difficult for me. So, right you know it's never it's never going to happen right so um that that's sort of the way i look at it yeah <laughs> that's, that's an interesting thing i i've played with the tool actually there's i because i had the academic thing happen i tried to convince it to formulate you know an argument that my colleagues should obey me because i'm the master of the universe mm -hmm. um it didn't do it it refused on ethical grounds which <laughs> that was that seemed very paradoxical that's to me. Ethics, that's <laughs> yeah. great. That, In fact, that's not ironic at all. Around. So, uh, so right there, I thought, you know, this this thing is, yeah, I, it, it's. It, I think what what happens always for me is, and I think it's the same way with stories. To bring it back to to literature or storytelling in general is, and even music. People that I know are very intelligent, seemingly discerning people. Um, being attracted to media and art that is storytelling that is clearly just the basics. And I think there's a, it's clearly formulaic, et cetera. And it's the same thing with this, right? 
really, I mean, people with PhDs and and super smart people are like, yes, this is the, we're doing this. And it's like, really? You're not even thinking, you're trained in critical thinking. Not even thinking about it. Not even thinking about the consequences of it. It's Well, we do live, we do live in, uh, you know, a a group think time is is very difficult um, to stay in a space where you know what you think and you're confident about that because there's a lot of, um moral shame and 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 you know up is down and left is right and i say that and you know i i i am a political person i i you know i've i've worked for three social democrat cabinet ministers in my country and a government caucus and um you know and and so so when i support a party it's it's like where's your health care plan and and things along those lines um, but I, I, I've noticed like left has literally become right up has become down and, and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, I, we've been having conversation here at home, uh, a home I share with an academic feminist and, um, I, because of this Chinoski business, I've been pulling out my old Bukowski. And uh, there's a book here called um, it's a Book of Poetry. You get so alone sometimes that it just makes sense. And it's a Bukowski novel, and I open mm-hmm. it up. And I, I'm not going to uh, say the woman's last name just in case she's had a change of heart. But uh, this was this was gifted to me by a friend, Nicola, who was an academic feminist from Guelph. And so mm-hmm. in the 90s and the 80s, um, and I, I had this conversation with the uh, the academic feminist in my house last night. Academic feminists in the 80s and 90s, it was not unusual for them to read Bukowski. Sure. I'm going to say that again. In the 80s and the 90s, it was not unusual for academic feminists to read Bukowski. Fast forward to now, it's sacrilege for academic feminists to read Bukowski or even tolerate people who do. I was going to say, it's not just them. It's kind of like everybody. Yes. Yes. And so, so, I mean, what happened in the last 30 years that made that taboo? I mean, it was always, it was, it was, it was always, um, you know, a subversive thing on some level to do to read Bukowski. Um, but nobody was ever shaming you for reading a book, you know, by an author, whether they liked it or not. And it, it, it just, you know, it, it's, it's turned into something else. And so it is Bukowski hasn't gotten any worse since he died. Okay. And, and um, I don't know that I would have wanted to party with him or even work with him, but um, you know, if, if uh, they, they unearthed the lost Bukowski manuscript and published it today. And I thought it was, you know, going to be in the same ballpark of goodness as, as all those great novels of his that I read in the nineties, I'm going to be at the bookstore, you know, when it opens the next day and I'm going to buy it. And, and so, um, you know, the, the, the morality around this and sundry issues 
it's it's it doesn't come from a good place and and it, it's it's um you know and 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 all these people trashing Bukowski have not accomplished uh, a fraction of of what he accomplished in terms of having a, a cultural um significance and in fact uh if you want to know what is in the garden variety male's mind at a certain point in their lives read women sure you're 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 you're, you're, you're you know you're you're not going to love it is, is there a more honest book about that no well no i don't i don't know that there is but so if you want to know read the book if you don't want to know don't but i don't nobody's forcing you to read the book yeah, yeah i don't want to hear any moral outrage about yeah. um you know that nicola gave me that book sure yeah i mean as a young writer obviously bukowski was a big big deal to me mainly as poetry i mean i think what's interesting about that is then you know i later did an mfa program i guess it's been eight nine ten years now but bukowski was conspicuously absent from any any readings or any suggestions of it mm -hmm. um and for a american writer of such influence that's quite interesting but also i think the denigration of his work around oh it's simplistic or it's this or it's not rhythmic in the way that it should be i think that's actually really interesting too which um i think if those things came from a truly critical place they're useful but when they're not when they're when they're based in some sort of hyper morality then it's it's not only not useful it's harmful so yeah i appreciate you bringing up bringing up that as well um yeah i think the i mean i think what we've kind of hit on here is the mind and heart and soul and spirit and effort of the individual artist is really kind of all that matters <laughs> Um, it, 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 it is just like the clash the only band that matters they used to say and um yep. I, I i think in terms of what you say uh the heart and the soul of the writer and what what actually you know we can get from here onto the page it, it, it is all that matters and it's all that's important and, and you know really for for the thinking person it's all that's going to carry and um you know you are 110 percent correct uh you know there's there's things that ai hasn't seen and things that ai hasn't experienced and uh i i well i'm not a techie i'm pretty damn sure that that it is going to lack depth i i think it'll be something that's um you know a mile and a half wide and half an inch deep you know sure uh, but that said if you advertise crap to people they will buy it so proven again and again yeah. uh, yes, yes. so so there if you like, advertise uh, it enough to enough they'll buy it yeah 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 well i'd like to keep our conversation going but Vern, i i uh it's been nice to chat with you i got to get back to the old day job um Understood. i really appreciate the novel uh it's scratching the flint. It's available wherever books are sold. And if it's not available where you buy books, tell the book buyer to get it there. Um, all the links to buy the book will be in the, the podcast listing. 
um, bookshop.org, all the requisite places that people go to. Um, it's from run amok books, fantastic crime novel, um, of incredible depth. Vern, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Matt. I'm looking forward to a good rush of blood seeing, seeing light of day in the fall. Yeah. Lots of great stuff coming out from run amok and run amok crime, uh, the imprint there. So we really appreciate you joining roughneck dispatch. I'll see you later. Thanks, Matt. If you'd like to support the Roughneck Dispatch podcast or know a writer that I should interview, get in touch. That said, I cannot think of a better way to play us out than with a DIY punk song. So, courtesy Gag Me Sharkoff from San Diego County, here it is, The Nub.